Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen, amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill, and it is great to see you this morning. Uh, we got some college students back. I know moving day was yesterday, so welcome back, college students. Great to see you guys again. I know we got some fo- folks joining us online as well, and uh, we are thankful that you have joined us this morning. We're continuing our series uh, through the book of Galatians, uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2. Please feel free here at Mercy Hill. Uh, use your cell phone, your tablet, print copy. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have some in the back of the room that you're more than welcome to go and grab. All right, Galatians chapter 2. Uh, November 20th, 2017 was a monumentous day in the history of our city, Atlanta, Georgia. It was the day when the Georgia Dome with all of its memories of almost and not quite, all the emotions of heartbreak and agony and despair was going to be destroyed. The Georgia Dome was going to meet its end. And the way it was going to happen on November 20th was it was going to be imploded, not exploded, imploded. Why? Well, because Mercedes-Benz is right next door, right? So we don't do damage to the new nice place, So they're going to implode uh, the Georgia Dome. And to me, it sounded awesome. I asked Kristen if I could check my kids out of school to go downtown and watch the Georgia Dome be imploded. We decided not to do that. In part, it sounded awesome to me, not just the visual of it, just that, you know, amazing thing happening. Uh, But also, I I think maybe, and maybe some of you sports fans have been around the state of Georgia, maybe Atlanta for a while can uh, understand this. Like, it almost felt cathartic. Like, I had watched too many terrible things happen in that building. Like, I had just seen the Georgia Bulldogs lose in the SEC championship game one too many times. Too many national championship games where a ball gets deflected off a helmet but I just needed it to disappear. You know what I mean? Like, I just needed it to go away. But of course, Atlanta was gonna get the best of us once again. The Weather Channel set up a live stream so that you could watch it online, and I prepared to watch it online. And then some of you will remember, this is what happened. We have a video of it I wanna show you. As people are watching the live stream of the implosion of the Georgia Dome, this, this is what happened. If you want to know what it's like to live in Atlanta, I think that's it. <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. So obviously, at the very wrong time, in the worst possible place, this Marta bus obscured or blocked the view of the live stream camera so that people streaming in to see it could not see what happened. Now, many of you know what that's like on a regular basis to have your view obstructed, to be blocked, have something to be obscured, whether that's getting fog in your goggles while you're trying to learn how to scuba dive. Maybe you haven't replaced your windshield wipers in months and months and months, and they should have been replaced two months ago, and that's when the storm happens. You have no idea. You can't see what's happening in front of you. Maybe the 6'7 guy sits in front of you 
during worship on Sunday morning, right? And obstructed, kind of trying to see around him. For some of us, it could be just a dirty contact lens. We've had fake news obstruct our view of the truth. Or, of course, a stinking Marta bus stopping right in the middle of the shot. So last week, we saw the importance of solid gospel teaching. That it's important for churches, believers, and followers of Jesus to get the central message of the Bible right. For that not to be distorted or changed or modified in any way. Today, what we're going to see in Galatians chapter 2, it is important for the gospel to not be obstructed, to not be blocked from you, so that other people can see it clearly. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump into Galatians chapter 2. Father, our prayer is that in these moments, you, by your Spirit, would meet with us, you would show us the truth in the Scripture, that you would make plain to us what might be confusing or difficult, and that you would speak to our very hearts. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, and set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them, he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Who's the you there? Remember this network of churches in Galatia. Verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, so there he just means to Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, so the Jewish people, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, from mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas, this is Peter, it's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? All right. There's a lot going on in this passage. And um, Paul doesn't kind of tell the story in order. I, I was 
telling the story to the band earlier, and they made fun of me because I was telling parts of the story and giving like my running thoughts in my brain, uh, and then telling more parts of the story. And, uh, and that's kind of what's going on in this passage. What, what, what he's describing is two different conflicts. And I think to sort it out, it would be helpful if maybe you saw the timeline of how this all unfolds. So we're going to draw some pictures again today. We're going to try it. You ready? Let's see if we can do this. Let's see. All right, I got to do this. Then I got to do this. Then I got to do this. Then I got to, I don't know. We'll see. So we're going to see these two different conflicts unfold. And what's going to be important is that they have something in common. Have something in common as we watch these conflicts unfold. All right. What did I, uh, what did I do? How did I break this, Stephen? I did, one of the this is is incorrect. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Yes. All right. Last time was so smooth, wasn't it? Was it not smooth? Did I just remember that incorrectly? All right, you guys got this? Cool. Here's a little timeline. I drew all these pictures myself. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I got, I got Krista Brogan to draw these pictures for me, and um, she told me not to tell anybody that these are her drawings, so I just broke the, I broke the rules. But uh, So here's what happens. About 34 AD, Paul uh, is converted to Christianity. You see this right here? So this is Paul's conversion, all right? Now, when Paul's converted, you might remember this happens in Acts chapter 9. It's a pretty miraculous event and a radical transformation. And so he goes from persecuting the church, trying to hunt down followers of Jesus and pull them into court, to becoming a follower of Jesus himself. Now, often we think, because Acts is kind of compressed, uh, when we read through the book that, that has these accounts in it, we think that he immediately started preaching and teaching. But that's actually not true. And so he hangs out in this town called Damascus for about three years. And then while he's in Damascus, he is teaching and preaching different places just locally, and he does what he normally does, which is make people angry. So he makes some folks angry, and they want to stone him. So he leaves Damascus, and he takes his first trip to Jerusalem. Now, he talks about this in Galatians chapter 1. And this is the first time he meets with Peter. And in that trip, he gets to know Peter a little bit and is in Jerusalem for just a short amount of time. And then he leaves Jerusalem and he doesn't go back to Damascus because remember, uh, they want to kill him there. So instead, he goes to Tarsus, which is his hometown. He just goes home. And for over a decade, Paul is just living in his hometown as a pretty normal guy, but seizing opportunities to teach about Jesus. Well, then something incredible happens. Um, in the book of Acts, there's a persecution that arises in Jerusalem. And so everybody has to leave Jerusalem. Believers just pour out of Jerusalem. And a bunch of followers of Jesus end up in this place called Antioch. And in Antioch, they start a church. And so about 46 AD, there's this church in Antioch right here. And you see all those people? Guess what? It is exploding. Like it is getting huge. People are coming to faith in Jesus in Antioch. 
And this church is growing beyond their capacity to handle it. So then a guy named Barnabas, who we saw in this text, says, oh, I know a guy who could help us, Paul. And Barnabas goes to Tarsus to get Paul and brings Paul back to Antioch. And so Paul begins to serve at the church in Antioch with another group of guys. Now, this is what's incredible. Here's what you have to know about Antioch, and we're going to get, this is going to be important later. This church has two big characteristics. The first one is, it's multi-ethnic. And so whereas a church in Jerusalem, and even some of the churches that Paul starts later, are all similar people from a similar area. Antioch is an incredibly diverse city, and the church is multi-ethnic. In fact, we find in the book of Acts that their leadership team is multi-ethnic. And so on their leadership team, they call them prophets and teachers in Acts. There's Paul and Barnabas that come from a Jewish background. Then there's Simeon and Lucius who come from Africa, probably the northern coast of Africa, And then there's a a Manian who's a Roman citizen. And these five guys are serving together in this multi-ethnic church. The church at Antioch, though, that's got one other characteristic. Ooh, that's not good. Which is that it's a sending church. And so we're going to see this church in Antioch start to take seriously the mission for the gospel to spread to all nations. And they go, okay, we started because of persecution, but what if we sent some people out to far reaches in order to tell people about Jesus? And so guess who they choose to send out from Antioch? Paul and Barnabas and a team of people who are gonna go with them to tell other people in areas where the gospel hasn't gotten to about Jesus. Now, before they send them out, they send them on one journey. Uh, They've heard that a famine is coming to Jerusalem. And so the church at Antioch raises money and sends aid to the church at Jerusalem. That's right here. So that's sometime probably between 46 and 47. And so Paul and Barnabas take a second trip to Jerusalem. And on the second trip, they're bringing relief or aid to the believers there. Now, in our passage... This is where conflict number one happens. Does that make sense? So they go to Jerusalem. There they meet with some of the apostles. And Paul does three things. We see this in Galatians chapter two. He meets with the apostles and he presents to them his message. Hey, for the past 12, 13 years, this is what I've been teaching. I've been teaching this gospel message that Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, and that people can be saved, people can be reconnected with God by faith and faith alone in Jesus. That's his message. And also you notice in Galatians chapter two, he points out who he brings with him. He brings Barnabas and Titus. Now Titus is important because Titus isn't Jewish and he's not circumcised, he's a Gentile. And so Titus shows up, and guess what? The apostles not only sign off on Paul's message, they don't add anything to what he's been preaching or teaching, but they sign off on his team. They give them the right hand of fellowship, and they don't make Titus follow through with circumcision. 
So they sign off on his message and they sign off on his team. And then he says, and here's our mission. We're about to leave from the church at Antioch and we're gonna go to more and more Gentile regions and share the gospel with them. And the apostles in Jerusalem, the leaders of this big, massive movement go, yeah, that's great. We want you to do it. And so in this conflict in Jerusalem, Paul is in Galatians chapter two saying, hey, I know some guys have come and are teaching you that you have to add to the gospel. You gotta follow certain customs or you have to follow certain uh, matters of the law before you can follow Jesus. He's like, that's not true. Why? Because I already met with Peter, James, and John. And they had the opportunity to tell me I was teaching the wrong gospel. And guess what? They didn't. And they had the opportunity to ask me to circumcise Titus who was gonna go on my missionary team. And guess what? They didn't. And they had the opportunity to tell me that my mission to the Gentiles needed to go this certain way. And guess what? They didn't. But there were some other guys, he says, who snuck in to spy out our freedom. And he said, we did not submit to them for a moment. We didn't give in to them. Why? It's probably the most important phrase in the passage because of the truth of the gospel. And he says that it might be preserved for you, the church of Galatians. So here's then what happens. Paul, Barnabas, and their team take their first missionary journey. And guess where they go on this first missionary journey? Galatia. It's one of the stops. Right? And so Paul's connecting the dots for them. He says, in fact, if they had changed my message in Jerusalem, guess who never would have heard the gospel? You, your church, your family, your friends. But instead, we opposed that teaching then for your benefit so that you could hear the good news about Jesus and we are going to oppose it now for your benefit. Now, after this first missionary journey, something else happens. They come back to Antioch and guess who comes to visit? Peter comes to Antioch. And this is the second conflict right here. So when Peter comes to Antioch, Remember, they have this exploding, multi-ethnic church. People from all different backgrounds, ethnicities, and races all together, led by a multi-ethnic team. And when Peter shows up, he's spending time with them. He's eating with them. He's fellowshipping with them. He's hanging out with them, just like he would any other follower of Jesus. But then something happens. A crew from Jerusalem show up, and they don't like it. They think it's not appropriate for a circumcised Jewish man like Peter to spend time with uncircumcised Gentiles like the church in Antioch. It doesn't matter that they're also followers of Jesus. It doesn't matter they're fellow believers. What matters is they're not the same. And so Peter, out of the fear of what these other men might say, withdraws his fellowship. He doesn't change his teaching, right? He doesn't become a heretic. 
He doesn't start talking about other gods or another way to be saved or anything like that. He just simply withdraws his fellowship from these Gentile, uncircumcised believers. And then what happens? Barnabas does the same thing. Now think about, remember the church of Antioch, think about what's in danger at this moment. They have just successfully planted churches in places there were no churches. And they have for two years been getting along as a multi-ethnic church. And for two years, they've been getting along on this leadership team. Well, Peter's choice starts to affect this team. Barnabas is on the team. Do you see the depths of this? He's now not hanging out with his fellow pastors whom he's been doing ministry with for two years. And so Peter says he opposed Paul. uh, Paul says he opposed Peter to his face. Said, hey man, that's that's not the way we do things here in Antioch. That's not the way we do things as believers. That's not what we do or who we are. And isn't it interesting that this conflict is not over theology? It's not about if Peter believes or says the right things. It's about what he does. And it's not just about his conduct in terms of if he is living some sort of holy or pure life, but in particular about the way he relates to other people. His willingness to extend fellowship to other people. So they have this conflict. And Paul says to him, hey man, this is verse 14. Hey, let me ask you a question. Did God extend a relationship to you based on your Jewish identity or based on your faith in Jesus? How did God initiate a relationship with you? Well, if God initiated a relationship with you, Peter, based on Jesus and what Jesus has done, who are you to not initiate or extend a relationship to someone else based on their ethnicity or if they follow certain customs? Imposed them and repeats this phrase, truth of the gospel. Paul says he wasn't walking in line with the truth of the gospel. He wasn't walking a straight line from the gospel. Well, then this conflict actually starts to get more and more serious. And so what we find about 49 AD in Acts chapter 15, there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, Paul shows up, Peter's there, James is there, and they have a discussion over what is required of Gentile believers. And where we think Galatians, that we're reading was written, is somewhere 48 to 49. It's almost like he's, Paul's writing this book on his way to this council. Official decision hasn't been made by the apostles about what's going to be required, but Paul's laying down the law in the book of Galatians. Now, what does this mean for us today? A couple of things. Number one, We have to think through this phrase, the truth of the gospel. The gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. That Jesus saves anyone who comes to him by faith. Not based on their ethnicity, 
not based on their race, not based on if they're obedience to certain customs, not based on if they grew up going to church or didn't grow up going to church, not based on uh, how moral of a person they are, but Jesus saves by faith. And this is so important because just like what Paul said, our insistence on the gospel message not being distorted or changed or obscured preserves it for our community, for the next generation, for the people around us. And it's not just what we believe or say, but verse 13, are we walking a straight line from the gospel? Our behavior and our conduct can obscure, can marta bus block the truth of the gospel. All right. So then two big takeaways today. Number one, a church should not be marked by conflict, but there is a right time for conflict in the church. A church should not be marked by conflict, but there is a right time for conflict in the church. If our church or any church is in constant conflict, that is a problem. The unity of the church is vitally important. However, there are other threats to the church and to our unity than just everybody getting along. And there is a time, like we see in this passage, for us to draw some lots and have some hard conversations and tell people this is as far as we will go. We cannot start to obscure or block or blur the gospel. We have to get the central message right and if there is a threat to the central message, we're going to have conflict about it. I love what John Stott says. He says, when the issue between us is trivial, we must be as pliable as possible. Trivial issues, we are preserving unity and being gracious to each other as much as we possibly can. But... When the truth of the gospel is at stake, we must stand our ground. So how do we know when we have conflict and when we don't? How do we know when we bring correction and when we just let something go? Well, I wanna introduce something to you. Uh, it is not new to me, but it's this concept of theological triage. You guys know what triage is? Uh, so emergency rooms use this process called triage. Whereas patients come in, they evaluate them based on their need. Is this an emergency? Is it urgent? Does this person need immediate care or can we get to them later? Now, that's incredibly important, right? Why? Well, because in an emergency room, you get all sorts of people coming in. So somebody could come in with a heart attack and somebody could come in with severe uh, physical injuries or burns and somebody could come in with a broken arm, and somebody could come in with cold-like symptoms. And all of those need to be treated differently. 
Somebody might be able to sit there for a while, but it would be terrible, right? If in an emergency room, you come in with a heart attack, but they're too busy resetting the arm of the kid that fell off the monkey bars, right? And so they do this thing called triage. And so we can do that as well in our churches. So when it comes to triage, there would be four levels. Level number one. This is the heart attack level. This is the level of essentials. And at level number one, what we're doing is, is really what makes Christians distinct from non-Christians. Does that make sense? What is essential to be a follower of Jesus? So at level number one, there would be things like the Trinity, who God is, that salvation is by faith in Jesus. That's what we're talking about in this passage, right? What would be there is the authority of the scripture. So we might disagree on certain passages or certain things in the Bible. We might even disagree on the makeup of the scripture in some ways, but we should all agree that it has authority to shape who we are as the followers of God, right? As people of God. And there would be some other things in those sorts of categories in level one. Level two, says someone's coming in with significant injuries. They need attention, but it's not emergency level just yet. And what we would say at level two are these are the things that make churches distinct from each other. And so we can disagree what? About baptism or the Lord's Supper, right? We could disagree about how we choose leaders in our churches. But at the end of the day, anyone who baptizes differently than what we baptize at Mercy Hill, we're not saying they're not a believer. They're not in the family. We're just saying we disagree about that. And so for most people, there are always some exceptions. For most people, this is the way they pick their church, right? Essential beliefs is why you follow Jesus. Level two is why you are at a particular church. And level three is important, but not really that important, right? And this is where we draw distinctions between different Christians, right? So level one is distinctions between Christians and non-Christians. It's what Christians believe. Level two is distinction between churches. It's what Baptists believe. It's what non-denominational churches believe. It's what Pentecostal churches believe. Separates those. Level three is what different Christians believe, and that might be different even inside the same church. And so we could believe different things about creation, right? This shouldn't affect our fellowship here. Somebody thinks an old earth theory. Somebody thinks a new earth theory. Somebody thinks it's a literary framework. Some people believe in day eight. Like, that's okay. We can all get along here. Level three would be um, perhaps um, the way we view uh, alcohol. I don't even know how to spell alcohol. Okay, so alcohol, <laughs> right? We would all agree that the Bible teaches not to be drunk, but all of us are gonna have here different convictions about if we are teetotalers or not, our relationship with it. And that's level three. And then there's level four. And level four is where dumb stuff goes. It's not important at all. 
And so this is like, uh, how many angels are there? Right? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Right? I don't know. Who cares? Right? And honestly, most of the stuff we fight over in church probably goes in this category. Right? There's no specific instructions about worship style in the scripture. Right? Is it important? Maybe. Is it important enough to divide us from each other? No. No. Right? Does that make sense? Theological triage. So when we have conflict, you know what we have conflict about? Here. You know what we don't fight about? Any of the rest of this. Now, does that mean we don't have disagreements? Yes. We can have healthy disagreements with each other about any of these things. Could this possibly affect where we go to church? Yes, absolutely. Could it possibly affect what small group we fall into? Sure. But are we getting out pitchforks and kicking somebody out of town and proclaiming they're not a Christian for anything but level one? No. All right. I'll show you in a minute why I think this is incredibly important. Does that make sense? Theological triage? Everybody on board? All right. Now, number two. Number one, we're not gonna be marked by conflict, but occasionally we gotta have it. Number two, we can obscure the gospel with our behaviors as well as our beliefs. We can distort the gospel with our teaching, but we can obscure it, block it, hide it, conceal it with our lives. Remember, the problem in this passage isn't that Peter doesn't believe in Jesus. Peter knows Jesus intimately. He walked with him for three years. He knows Jesus. The problem isn't that he's got his theology wrong. The problem is he's got his conduct or his behavior wrong. And when that happens, when we obscure the gospel, there are serious consequences. Peter has affected Barnabas. He's affected the leadership team at the church in Antioch. None of us live in a vacuum. We all live in a network of relationships and our conduct, when it's not in line with the gospel, affects the way other people see the gospel. Not just the unity of that church was at stake, but remember the mission was at stake. They had just sent this team out and planted churches. What if this event had so derailed the church, this was Paul's last and final missionary journey. There's consequences. And when you and I obscure the gospel with our conduct, we are often making the good news of Jesus not look so good. We are saying yeah, hey, I believe this great thing about Jesus. And then our lives are saying something else entirely. Tim Keller says it this way. This gospel truth has a vast number of implications for all of life. 
It is our job to bring everything in our lives in line with the thrust or the direction of the gospel. We are to think out its implications in every area of our lives and seek to bring our thinking, feeling, and behavior in line. So should we be gracious? Yes. Why? Because Jesus has been incredibly gracious to us. And when we refuse to extend grace, what are we saying? We're obscuring something about the gospel. Should we be forgiving? Yes. Why? Because we've been forgiven by Christ. And when we refuse to forgive, what are we doing? We're obscuring the gospel by our own conduct. Should we extend fellowship to all believers regardless of their background? Yes. Why? Because Jesus extended fellowship to us regardless of our background. And when we don't do those things, what we start to do is conceal or block the gospel. People don't see Jesus rightly. And Paul says that's a major problem. That in order to preserve the gospel for more and more people, we have to be serious about our own lives. So how do we do this? How do we obscure the gospel? How do we make the good news of Jesus that anybody can know God? That God initiated a relationship with people through Jesus. How can we make that good news not look so good? Well, one way is when we don't do theological triage. When we don't rightly see where conflict should happen and where conflict should not happen. These false brothers that Paul talks about in the passage are elevating a matter of what amounts to just Christian freedom to a gospel issue. What are they doing? They're flattening the whole thing out. Is it a big deal if these men are circumcised? No, it's not a big deal. Does that prevent them from following Jesus? No, it does not. Could they circumcise their kids? Yes. Could they observe other Jewish customs and holy days? Yes. Are any of these first order teachings? No. But... What they did is they elevated it to a gospel first order issue. And when you flatten out theological triage, what you get is fundamentalism. Where no one belongs here except for the people that agree with me all the way down the list. The problem is that obscures the gospel. And many of my brothers and sisters who flatten theological triage and fall into fundamentalism, what are they trying to do? They're trying to preserve the truth. Their motivations are often good. We have to make sure people know everything about Jesus it has to be doctrinally accurate, but in flattening and making essential things and non-essential things at the same level, what happens? We end up communicating something wrong about Jesus. Our conduct is not walking a straight line in the gospel. So we refuse to be patient with other people whom we have disagreements with about non-essential issues, and that says something about the gospel. There is another problem, though, when we don't do theological triage, and that's when none of it is important. Making everything of the same importance is a ditch, but so is none of it. 
And for some of us, in the name of grace and love and being like Jesus, we minimize essential doctrines of the faith. And we fail to preserve the truth of the gospel. And in trying to act like Jesus in grace and love, we lose the robustness of who Jesus actually is. And we start to communicate something that's untrue about the gospel. We start to feel nervous about the bad news that has to be delivered before we can deliver the good news. And so we don't want to talk about anybody's sin or anybody's problems or anybody's need because we don't want to ruffle any sort of feathers. But the problem is I have to know I'm having a heart attack before I can go to the emergency room. And when nothing is important, we are looking at friends and neighbors who are in an emergency situation and just saying, you're probably fine. Our conduct is not in line with the gospel. So when we don't do theological triage, we can't obscure the gospel. And then more generally, when our conduct isn't in line with the gospel, we obscure it. When we receive fellowship with God by his grace, but we reject fellowship with others based on some other set of standards, we are not in line with the gospel. We're not walking straight. When we don't treat people like they are image bearers, when we show partiality or favoritism, when we refuse to admit that all of us are in need of rescue by Jesus, when we require of others what we don't require of ourselves, or when we require of other people more than what Jesus requires from them in order to be saved. Our conduct is out of step with the gospel. We block it or obscure it. And people who are trying to see this gracious, good, truth-telling Jesus can't because of the manner of our lives. So today is a day for our church to repent. A day where we have to be really honest about ways that we've obscured the gospel. A time to maybe lay down something, realizing and I'm ready to fight with people over a third place issue. I need to get over it. Realizing perhaps, hey, I'm, I'm minimizing some essentials. I'm probably actually hurting people in the process, not helping them. I'm telling somebody with a heart attack, they're probably fine. No need to go to the emergency room. Then there's some ways just in our conduct, the way we live our lives, obscures the gospel. Here's the good news of the passage and the good news for us today. Conflict happens. Paul opposes Peter. And it seems like Peter repents and changes his mind. Because he goes to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 a year later and is a part of the decision to make sure that Gentiles come to Jesus by faith and nothing else is required of it. Isn't that beautiful? It's a good news today. No matter how you and I have obscured the gospel, we can change. 
We can be different. We don't have to stay where we are. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.